We want to remind our listeners that this program is for informational and educational purposes only and not intended to substitute for professional veterinary medical advice, diagnosis, or treatment. The Animal Medical Center does not recommend or endorse any products or services advertised by SiriusXM. Welcome to Ask the Vet with Dr. Ann Hohenhaus. This is the place to talk about your pets and get advice with a top veterinarian from the Animal Medical Center in NYC. Hear from the leading authorities on animals and ask your questions. Now, here's your host, Dr. Ann Hohenhaus. Well, hello, everyone. I'm so glad you can join me today on Ask the Vet podcast. I'm your host, Dr. Ann Hohenhaus. I'm a senior veterinarian and director of pet health information here at the Schwarzman Animal Medical Center in New York City. Um, We're currently suffering from smoke from wildfires in Canada, and we can barely see out our windows here in New York City. But it's good because we're safe and can breathe fine inside. And we've got a packed program today with three special guests. I'll be talking with pilot Andrew Zensky and his wife, Anne, from Pilots and Paws. It's a wonderful nonprofit organization dedicated to bringing rescue animals to their forever homes. And this is going to be a very heartwarming conversation. And then later on, my colleague, Dr. Kelly Muller, will join me to talk about her experience, which is just in its final days of wrapping up as an intern here at the Schwarzman Animal Medical Center, and her plans to continue through our coveted residency program. I hope you'll stay tuned. If you're new to this podcast, welcome. Thanks to your support, Ask the Vet is now ranked fourth on Feedspot's Top 45 Pet Podcasts for 2023. And thanks to AMC's longstanding partnership with SiriusXM, Ask the Vet podcast can be accessed on demand on the Sirius app or on any major podcast platforms. We hope you'll follow us and like us. The Schwarzman Animal Medical Center is New York City's only level one veterinary trauma center and the world's largest not-for-profit animal hospital located in the heart of New York City. Now, if you have a question about your pet's health, just email me and I'll answer your question on next month's Ask the Vet show. We have a special email. It's really easy to remember. AskTheVet at amcny.org. Again, askthevet at amcny.org, and I'll give it again later in case you didn't have a pen or pencil to write it down. And now it's time for our trending animal of the month. It's time for the Internet's most talked about animal. Australia's Middle Island, which is on the southern coast of Australia, between Australia and Tasmania, is home to little penguins, the smallest penguins in the world. And these little guys only are 14 inches tall. For decades, Middle Island was a safe haven for breeding and ground nesting until somehow foxes discovered the area and nearly devastated the entire population of little penguins. But two unlikely heroes came to the penguins' rescue. A chicken farmer named Swampy Marsh, yes, that in fact is his real name, and his big white Marema guardian dog named Oddball. Because of the success Swampy had training these dogs to guard his free-range chickens from predators, i.e. foxes, he was confident that his dogs keep the little penguins on Middle Island safe too. But before they could go, the local city council needed to approve the effort, since dogs are not allowed on Middle Island. 
by the time Swampy and Oddball arrived, there were only four little penguins remaining on Middle Island. Thankfully, their rescue efforts to safeguard these little birds from foxes were immediate success and have been sustained. Today, there are nearly 200 little penguins breeding and nesting on Middle Island, all thanks to a chicken farmer and his dog. Those dogs, dogs are just the best. Google little penguins on Middle Island, Australia for more information and a real interesting video on this story. I'm so happy to welcome my first guest and my colleague, Dr. Kelly Muller, to Ask the Vet. Dr. Muller graduated from the UC Davis School of Veterinary Medicine in California and was accepted to the Schwarzman Animal Medical Center's internship program, where she spent the last year rotating through the various specialty services that we have. Earlier this year, Dr. Muller was accepted into AMC's coveted neurology residency program. So, Dr. Muller, thanks so much for joining me today on Ask the Vet. Well, thank you so much for having me, Dr. Hellenhouse. It's a pleasure. So, this is a question I'd like to ask other veterinarians is, did you grow up wanting to be a veterinarian? The short answer is yes. I grew up very interested in medicine. I was a competitive gymnast and saw a lot of my own doctors through the early days. So I thought I was going to go into human medicine until high school where I shadowed our family veterinarian and learned that through veterinary medicine, I got that passion for medicine that I already had, but also combined it with the love of animals. And that brought me a lot more joy and fulfillment than human medicine did. And kind of since high school, I've been pretty dedicated to the path. I, I spoke with some physicians this morning on a different radio program, and they one of them wanted to be a veterinarian and then realized he, he had too much heartbreak seeing sick and injured animals, yeah. and so he became a physician instead. So interesting. So for me, I, I would swear that my internship year was the best year of my life. Um, I had... All my intern mates were instant friends. We all made no money and lived in a really expensive city. And we were always looking for great things to do together and, and to enjoy New York. So can you talk about some of the highlights of your internship year at AMC? For sure. And I agree with you. My colleagues and the friendships I have built have got to be number one on that list. I came in knowing that with a huge intern class, there had had to be people that I would get along with and make friends with, but it has gone past just my intern mates. The interns, the residents, even staff doctors have become such close friends and colleagues. It's been fantastic to kind of develop that mentorship and the network of colleagues for the rest of my career. I would say in terms of uh, highlight, especially now that I'm at the end of my internship, for me, it's kind of looking back and doing the same rotations that I did at the very beginning of this year, doing them again now at the end and realizing just how much I've grown as a doctor in this one year. For example, I just got off of internal medicine and it was my third time rotating through. So that means three full months on the service. And I remember the very first time I was on feeling so overwhelmed just by the caseload and the depth of cases that I needed to go into and not really being sure how to shuffle them all and keep track of them all. And then this past rotation, I saw the same number of cases. I tracked those. So I know that for sure, but it felt much more manageable. And I felt so much more in control and confident making decisions that it's just been really exciting and fulfilling for me to see that transition over the course of this year. I think one of the really unique things about um, AMC trained people 
is that we see so many things in so many different variations that you can walk down a hall and see an animal and say, oh, I think that animal has X. And, and you'll be right almost all the time because veterinarians here develop this quick ability to size up a, a patient very quickly and then figure out what they have with not, not always a lot of information. And it's because we've seen so many of whatever it is that we see. Um, and, and I think that's one of the beauties uh, of our internship here. For sure. It's the caseload and it's also the mentorship. It's the ability for me to look at something and maybe not know what's going on, but have some specialist or some staff doctor in the building who's happy to talk me through the case and has probably seen it before that I can rely on their experience to get to that point and continue learning. So a lot of our listeners may not really be familiar with what an internship looks like. So can you just kind of give an overview of what an internship year encompasses? For sure. So an internship year is typically your first year out of veterinary school. And for us, it's a rotating internship, meaning that we spend time on multiple different specialties in the hospital. The majority of those specialties are internal medicine, surgery and ER. I spend about two to three months in each of those. And then the remainder of my time is split between various specialties. So for me personally, I spent time on neurology, knowing that was my interest. I spent time with Dr. Hohenhaus herself on oncology as my very first rotation, and then a variety of others so that I can continue to gain experience. And on each of those services, I work as a doctor, but I work under the supervision of a boarded, typically specialist, so that I have their insights to help guide me through the cases. Um, what do you do for your elective rotation? Let me guess, was, more neurology. Correct. I was lucky to actually get elective and neurology back to back, so it meant I got a longer span of time at once and actually got to follow more cases through. So, so every at AMC, not every internship, but at, at our AMC internship, every intern has an option for some elective time where they can either do a rotation that they didn't happen to get in the rotation assignments, or like Dr. Muller did, focus on a rotation that they're really interested in to try and solidify in their mind that that's actually what they want to do. And we have people who have spent a lot of time this year on oncology because it's what they're interested in. Um, so neurology, neurology, I, weak point for me, really weak. Um, but um, what attracted you to that particular field? Yeah, my first kind of interest and inclination that neurology might be where I wanted to go was actually my first year of veterinary school in our anatomy and physiology course. It was probably the hardest course for me in all four of my years. I struggled quite a bit at the beginning, but I found it the most satisfying. And the more I spent time with it and understood pathways, the more I could see the connections between the brain and the central nervous system and the rest of the body. And I was just fascinated by that combination of puzzle solving and being able to, you know, direct one thing along a pathway and make sense of it. But at the same time, recognizing that our knowledge of the central nervous system is lacking and that there's still so much in the field to learn that, that it really excites my curiosity. And then kind of over the past year, year and a half, when I've actually been practicing veterinary medicine, I've learned that on a day-to-day -day 
basis. I love being in the OR and I love the surgical aspect of the field, but I would miss kind of the medicine or workup of cases that you see through an internal medicine service. And neurology is really fortunate that it's kind of sits right in the middle of those two, that I get to do both the neurosurgical side, but also the medical side of neurology and workup cases. So for me, it, neurology fits my kind of interests and curiosity and uh, is a good fit with what I like to do on a day-to-day -day basis. So neurology, I think for, for some people is a, mm, I'm not really sure what neurology is. So can you talk about, talk about the common things that you would see on appointments in neurology? And yeah. then what, what things do you do in surgery on neurology? For sure. So probably the most common appointment that we see that's kind of a medical neurology would be either seizure control. So a pet that's having recurrent seizures or needs to work with a neurologist to try to look for the underlying cause and treatments of its seizures. Other things we see quite a bit of are inflammatory disease. That means inflammation in the brain or the spinal cord that can cause some pretty severe side effects. The things we do in surgery most commonly is probably disc disease. So those nice squishy discs that sit between the vertebrae, and quite a few of our dogs will be degenerate over time and cause injury to the spinal cord. So our most common surgery is going in, taking out that abnormal material and trying to relieve compression and damage the spinal cord with the hopes of improving those pets abilities to walk. We do also do brain surgery, which is something that most people aren't aware of, but we do take uh, you know, brain tumors out or try to change the anatomy of the brain to better improve pet's quality of life. Um, one of my patients went to neurology today because he's a very elderly cat and we think he probably just had a little stroke because he's already getting better today. But we were very grateful that neurology um, took care of him for us because we weren't really sure what we should do with him. So um, that that for me is the best part about working at AMC is although this cat has cancer today, its major problem is not its cancer. And in fact, is that he probably had a little stroke and um, having the other specialists available to to help do, you know, help me better manage my patients is is one of the best things I think about here. That's my opinion. But what What's your opinion about what the best thing about um, AMC is? Oh, I would agree completely with that. And that was actually a big driver in my choice to stay at the Animal Medical Center was that I love that throughout my learning, no matter what service I'm on, that if I come across something, there's something, in, someone in the building who's been trained on that specific area, and they're here at the Animal Medical Center because they enjoy teaching as a part of their role in as being a doctor. So I just love that I can go to almost anyone and have you know, assistance and expertise on a case and get better quality of care and learn for myself as well. I think the other huge thing about that is because AMC has built this reputation of excellence, along with it comes the caseload. And as we were saying before, we see such a high volume of cases that it's fantastic to learn from, but we also see some of the most interesting or complex cases that are referred from various hospitals, including academic institutions, and we get to try to figure that out and work them up and work with these fantastic owners to come up with potentially new and novel treatment options to kind of push our field and improve care. I think that um, that that the other specialists, you know, you you said 
that you liked it, that you worked with people who like to teach. I actually don't really think I teach that much. I think I learn. I learn stuff every single day, um, either working with colleagues um, or um, having interns and residents ask me questions for which I seem not, never to know the answer. And then we always have to look up and try and figure it out. So I, I, I mean, in some ways, I feel like I've been doing an internship for several decades at this point, um, because there's always something more to learn and talk about and try and figure out how to do it or, or how to do it better sort of thing. So it's um, the environment here is is incredibly unique because of that. So three weeks from now, you'll be a resident or maybe it's four, but it's mm -hmm. really soon. So what kind of goals do residents have and what are your specific resident goals? So I guess my most kind of, you know, the first goal and what should be my most basic goal is to just to walk out this door being a competent, skilled medical and surgical neurologist and looking at the past residents and the current residents in our own neurology program, I'm very confident that they can, you know, provide me with those skills. So looking a little bit beyond that, one of the big things that I'm looking forward to is having case follow-up. Like we mentioned earlier, as an intern, you're on a service for maybe a month, maybe two months at max, but you don't get that long-term, you know, years of getting to work with the same clients and patients and develop those relationships and follow those cases over a long time period. And I'm just very much looking forward to getting those kinds of relationships. The other thing that I'm looking forward to, and you kind of hit on this in your previous comment, was setting that foundation for how to be a lifelong learner and how to keep up with this field that's so rapidly developing and changing to build myself into a place as a doctor where I'm always willing to take that next step to look things up and know where to look, how to look, who to ask so that I can kind of stay at the forefront of this field moving forward and make sure that I'm flexible and adaptable in my care. Well, I think I was talking to two of my res former residents because um, we spent a day in Central Park with their children. And that's one of their challenges in private practice is um, that it's very hard for them to keep up. And I'm lucky because I've got three residents and some number of interns. Sometimes it's one, sometimes it's more than one, all of who are saying, well, I looked this up and I read this and well, but. PubMed shows me this paper. And so that it's the team of people that are lifelong learners that really make a difference um, in the care that we can give here at AMC, because there's always somebody looking up something and saying, well, what if we did this? Or can we solve the problem this way? So I, I think that um, that is, you know, a really important set of goals for residency. So we just have a minute or two left. Um, what would you want our listeners to know about uh, internships? I guess I would want them to know that a doctor that chose to do an internship is a doctor that's really committed and excited to continue learning and has put a lot of extra time and effort that they didn't necessarily have to take into being in that field. So, you know, if I guess for our listeners to have some extra respect for those people that are choosing to do that and excited to keep working. So I think maybe I should have said this earlier, but internships and residencies are not required in veterinary medicine. So all of us that did them um, could have gone out into practice and instead 
we decided to do an internship because we wanted to learn more and know more and maybe be a specialist. So um, even if, if your veterinarian has done an internship but not a residency, that person is an extra motivated veterinarian um, and probably will take great care of your pet. So I want to thank Dr. Kelly Muller, um, who is a neurologist in progress, um, for joining me today on Ask the Vet, and also congratulate her because graduation is at AMC is two weeks from tomorrow, I think. And so we'll be celebrating not only Dr. Muller, but another 20 residents and our class of 30 interns who will be finishing their year and be excited to meet the next group coming through. Thank you very much, Dr. Hohenhaus. It's been a pleasure. Oh, you're welcome. And when we come back from the break, um, I will answer pets health questions. Don't forget that you can send your questions to me at our email, which is askthevet at amcny.org. And I'll respond to your questions on next month's show. We're gonna take a short break, but stay tuned because we've got animal news as well. We're back with Dr. Anne Hohenhaus on Ask the Vet. Hi, welcome back to Ask the Vet. It's time for animal news. It's time for animal headlines, the biggest animal news from across the world. No doubt you've seen all the coverage of celebrities dressed to the nines at the recent Met Gala. Well, some very lucky rescue dogs and even a cat had their own shining moment at the 10th anniversary pet gala, Canine Courtier. Anthony Rubio created outfits for 10 dogs and one cat, all inspired by the best celebrity styles from the recent Karl Lagerfeld-themed Met Gala. There was Lala, a Pomeranian wearing Cardi B's quilted patch gown, Dua Lipa, tweed dress worn by Layla's sister Darla, Kimba, a chihuahua, was dressed as Jared Leto, who was dressed as Coupette, the cat, and Bagel, the sunglass cat, as Doja Cat. Rubio has plans for next year's pet gala to raise money for animal shelters and pet charities. Everything I do, I do for my love of animals, he said. Just Google the New York Post and pet gala for amazing photos. I actually think the Met Gala photos were pretty uh, pretty outstanding this year, too. Um, the, the guy dressed up as Coupette was just to die for. Our second story today is from the New Q Zoo in Cornwall. They celebrated the birth of a pair of the world's rarest piglets, also known as Vizian warty piglets. As few as 200 of these piglets remain in the wilds of the Philippines. And this is the second successful litter born at the zoo following the birth of their older siblings last year. And the older siblings are named Kevin Bacon and Amy Swinehouse. I, how can people come up with such great names? The new pair of babies are not named yet, but Mother May and her partner Randy are part of a breeding program to help increase the worldwide population of Vizian warty pigs. Only the males have three pairs of warts on their faces, and those warts help to protect them while they fight. They also grow impressive long manes during the mating season to help them attract mates and intimidate other males. Dozens of zoo in Europe and North America have captive breeding programs for this critically endangered species. And if you wanna see pictures of these rare piglets, just Google rare piglets 
for great photos on Google. Now let's go to questions from our listeners. So the first question comes from Brandy. Uh, she asks, I have a cane corso with many allergies, among them chicken, lamb, rice, peas, and oats. I don't feed him kibble because he salivates excessively, which I assume is greed. My vet does too, but doesn't seem too concerned about it. It's worse at night. My question is, how do you feel about cooked meals for dogs? He's currently on Farmer's Dog, which runs about $580 a month, and I just can't continue that expense. I was thinking about starting a high-end kibble. Do you have any recommendations? So first, I want to explain a couple of things that Brandy talks about here. She talks about GERD, which is um, gastroesophageal reflux disease. And so when her dog is salivating excessively, they're worried that he's having reflux, and then he drools a lot. And then farmer's dog, for those of you who don't know, is kind of a new style of dog food, which is um, food that is looks more like a meal for us and then is frozen and you thaw the appropriate amount for your dog. And, and that kind of food is, is very expensive, especially for a Cane Corso, who is like a 90 to 120 pound dog. I mean, they are really big. So... My answer to Brandy is with all these food allergies, I think that this owner would be way ahead in the long run by getting a consultation with a board certified veterinary nutritionist. These people are so smart and they might be able to say, oh yes, there's a kind of food that doesn't have all these things that the Cane Corso is allergic to. And they might be able to find a commercially prepared food that would meet the dog's nutritional needs and help minimize the gastroesophageal reflux that the dog is having as well. And so a consultation with the nutritionist will be money well spent. So to find a board certified nutritionist to schedule a consultation, you want to go to a website and it's called ACVN, which stands for American College of Veterinary Nutrition org and on that homepage you're going to find a spot that says click to find a board certified nutritionist near you and then you'll be able to find someone who can do this sort of consultation so very good luck and i hope that uh, you can find a good alternative to the um, very expensive but very tasty diet that your dog is eating our next question comes from arlene in phoenix arizona and Arlene writes that her vet recently suggested that her 12-year-old tabby cat named Betty would benefit from blood tests. Arlene says her cat is healthy, fully vaccinated, and is an indoor-only cat. She's asking why does her cat need comprehensive blood tests? So the, the answer to this question is provided by um, the life stage guidelines that have been developed by the American Association of Feline Practitioners and the American Animal Hospital Association. Cats that are 10 years and older would be considered a senior cat. And senior cats are more prone to disorders like chronic kidney disease, hyperthyroidism, high blood pressure. And so blood tests and a good physical examination and a blood pressure measurement are the only way that you can make diagnoses like chronic kidney disease, hyperthyroidism, and blood pressure, hypertension. So 
we can treat these orders and prevent complications that result from high blood pressure, like blindness from retinal detachment. And so since Betsy, Betty sounds terrific right now, I'm sure Arlene wants to keep Betty that way. And identifying disease early when it's still treatable is absolutely the best way to keep Betty and get Betty to be a 18 year old healthy tabby cat. So Arlene, just say yes to those blood tests because that is a really good way for you to have Betty for as long as you possibly can. And our last question today comes from Janet in Nashville, Tennessee. Uh, Janet writes in that she recently adopted a sweet poodle named Millie. Her vet thinks she's about four years old. She would like to start brushing her teeth but hasn't been very successful should she just give up can you recommend anything to help make this a better experience and a successful outcome so if you go to amc's website which is amcny.org and then click on uh, pet health information it will take you to a page that has videos and in the videos there will be a toothbrushing video so one thing to make this a better experience for millie is for you to have better skills by watching the video the other thing is you can also buy dog toothpaste and dog toothpaste is not minty, it's meaty. And that will make it a better experience for Millie because to dogs, meaty is a good taste and um, that will make her like the toothbrushing better. And finally, switch up the toothbrush. So if you use one of those little finger puppet toothbrushes, maybe Millie would like kind of more a regular toothbrush to be used or vice versa. So switch up the toothbrush, get, a, get some meaty toothpaste and watch a video. And I bet Millie will think having her teeth brushed is one of the best things since sliced bread. And when we come back from the break, we'll have news from the Animal Medical Center and also our guests, Anne and Andrew from Pilots and Paws. We're back with Dr. Ann Hohenhaus on Ask the Vet. Welcome back to Ask the Vet. And it's time for news from the Animal Medical Center. For listeners who are pet parents of flat-faced dogs, and I'm talking about French and English bulldogs, Boxers, Boston Terriers, Pekingese, Sharpays, Pugs, Lhasa Apsas, Shih Tzus, and Bull Mastiffs. These breeds have these really short little faces, and they're called brachycephalic, which is a fancy term that means short-nosed dogs. Brachycephalic airway syndrome is a series of functional abnormalities that can make breathing difficult for these pets. If you want to learn more about this issue, I would love for you to join us at the next Usdan Institute Pet Health Online event, which will be brachycephalic airway syndrome and take place on Wednesday, June 28th at 6 p.m. Eastern time. My, one of my favorite AMC surgeons, Dr. Daniel Spector, who is the service head of Surgical Service 2 and the Surgery Residency Program Director, will discuss the clinical signs of brachycephalic airway syndrome and the various issues that cause breeding difficulties and how we can work to treat these dogs. Also coming up this summer for children ages 8 to 10, the Schwarzman AMC will again host its online week-long children's camp with a chance to meet veterinarians while learning how to care for animals. The program runs July 17 through 21 and will be held on Zoom. 
Like all AMC events, camp is free, but space is limited. To register for either or both of these events, you simply need to go to AMC's website, which is amcny.org backslash usdan, U-S-D-A-N, events, and register so that we can send you the link to the Zoom. While you're online, I hope you'll check out the USDAN Institute's free pet health library. It's packed with information sourced from veterinary experts at the Schwarzman Animal Medical Center. And to find it, it'll, if you go to our homepage, you can get uh, by clicking on pet health information, you can get right to all the great information that the USDAN Institute has to offer. Now, I'm delighted to welcome my second guest, or actually second and third guests of the day, Pilot Andrew Zensky and his wife, Anne. They're volunteers with Pilots and Paws, which is a wonderful nonprofit organization dedicated to transporting rescue pets to their forever homes. Andrew and Anne, I'm so looking forward to our conversation. Well, thank you. So, Pilots and Paws is a really special organization. Can you tell our listeners about your mission, how they started, and how the organization works? Sure, I'd be happy to. The organization started in 2008. It's a, uh, it was two people, Debbie Boyce, uh, who's an avid pet lover, and John Werenberg, who's a, a private pilot. Debbie had a recently rescued Doberman in the state of Florida that she needed to get to her in South Carolina. And John agreed, volunteered. Anyway, they got together and John made the flight and and rescued the dog. And that was the beginning. That led to, hey, why can't we do more of this? Transportation of rescued pets is really important. And maybe we can, uh, you know, maybe we can make an impact. And indeed they did. They launched a website, it's pilotsandpaws.org. Uh, and really what the website is, it, it's a meeting place for volunteer pilots to connect with other people involved in rescuing animals, um, either shelters, uh, fosters, and having the need to move them from one location to the next. Um, so that was the beginning. Today, there's approximately 5,000 volunteer pilots. I'm one of them. And there's more than 12,000 volunteers on the website that regularly uh, connect and, and move animals. We, we're based in Raleigh, North Carolina. And so our activity is primarily up and down the East Coast. We have gone as far South as Florida but uh, typically it's South Carolina or Georgia, and then up to Maryland, maybe for a handoff, or we'll go to New Jersey, New York, New Jersey area. So do you have, use your own plane to transport these animals or where does the airplane come from? Yeah, uh, I, I would say most of the volunteer pilots are using their own aircraft, but there are some that uh, are renting. Actually, there's actually been a few student pilots that uh, have been involved. Now for them to do the work, they, they would have to have their flight instructor with them. But as you're training and, and developing and practicing and developing 
for logging hours. That's just another good use of aviation fuel. You have to be running the airplane. Anyway, why not uh, rescue an animal at the same time? So yeah, in our case, it's our own. Um, and it's, um, I don't know, we, we've, you know, depending on the size of the pups and the litters, you know, we, we could, we might only have one or two dogs. Other times we've had as many as 19. Um, but, you know, keep in mind that sometimes those puppies are maybe only uh, a pound or two uh, together with their mother, but, but it counts. So I want to go back to the student pilot issue so student pilots have to practice so many hours with their instructor so one way to double use that student practice time is for them to fly somewhere that a dog needs to go well that's right and really it's not limited to student pilots you know like anything else practice makes perfect and even if you are certified as, as a pilot you still have to maintain currency and you still have to you know if you're going to remain safe you're, you're going to have to get out and, and practice on a regular basis. So rather than just getting out and flying around the airport in circles, why not do something more, more beneficial? And oh, I, I love that. I, yeah, and that's really the, that's, that's what really makes this thing happen. And, you know, the other thing is private pilots are very much limited to what they can do by, by the FAA. Uh, they can't work for hire. They, you know, volunteer is fine. They uh, so, so they really look um, very positively at this at, at this activity. You know, doing things like um, re rescuing animals is a great one. Other times they might be doing some search and rescue, but uh, this has really taken off, I think, in, in large part because it it really gives some purpose to to the private pilot that did spend quite a bit of time and effort in getting that license. So if a rescue group has an animal that they need to go from point A to point B, can they just go to your website and say, is someone around that could get this animal from point A to point B? Is that how it works? Yeah. Let's, so let's get back to that's really getting back to your first question, isn't it? How does it work? And that really is it in a nutshell. It starts with a rescue group that uh, typically the way it is, is um, Someone, and it's typically in the Northeast, is looking for a certain type of animal um, because that, there's a, that's a demand and they know they can easily adopt it. And they'll have a connection with someone maybe in South Carolina. That's a, that's an that's a real example for us. New Jersey and South Carolina are linked together. And so um, the rescue person will then go to that website and post a, re a request. I have... Uh, uh, X number of dogs. They'll give the weight, the breed. Um, uh, I'm sorry. Health certificates. Yeah, make sure that they have health certificates um, and uh, a lot of good inf background information, so the pilot will know that this is a real. It's a and it's a legitimate request. And what'll happen? It, it'll go out on the website, and then the pilots will um, see it, and they'll they'll volunteer. So maybe the maybe the pup has to go 400 miles. And so one pilot might say, well, I'll do half of that. I'll take a, I'll take the first leg. And then, and then it might sit there for another day. And then another pilot will come in and do the rest of it. So it's very loose knit uh, network of pilots and rescue people 
that come together at this at this meeting place, which is the Pilots and Pog website. That that it's think of how that would how difficult that would have been before we had the internet. You know, 15 years ago it would have been impossible to organize it, and now it it's not a problem. You know, if you just go and say, "I got a dog; it needs to go here," sort of thing. That's right. Yes. Um, and you know, and and I was re referring to um, the north and the south, or, or the, the the southern states and the northern states. What's happened is, um, and I'll give you a few statistics here that I that I got from the Pilots and Pause group. Um, there are, even though there's been some success with the spay and neutering uh, campaigns, it's still hit and miss, and it's been more favorably, more beneficial in certain areas than others. And in the Southern states, we find that there is an overpopulation of, of cats and dogs. Um, and uh, it works out where there's something like 4 million no longer wanted pets are, are euthanized each year. These local shelters are you know, typically county run with limited budgets and they can only keep the animals for so long. So getting them out of those areas and into areas where it's illegal to euthanize, getting them from kill shelters to no kill shelters, to non-kill shelters, is a big piece of what the Pilots and Pilots group is doing. Um, well, we at AMC know all about this issue because we run a program um, to provide medical care for animals belonging to rescue organizations. And we treat diseases at AMC that are not indigenous to New York, but are imported with animals that come from other parts of the country that have been rescued. So I, I know exactly what you're talking about from a completely different, but closely related standpoint. Yeah, well, you know, we will um, insist that the that the, that the animals have health certificates before we move them. And many of the states require this. And now those health certificates are simply certifying that at that point in time, they, the, the, the animal does not have a contagious disease. Um, you know, and they're checking for worms and the, and the typical, typical things. And, and it's important to us too, because we often fly with our own, with our own dogs, uh, if there's room for the ones we're saving along with ours. And so we want to make sure we keep ours healthy. Do, but, do your uh, dogs fly with, do you have dogs and do they fly with you? Yes, well, they're both rescues. They're you know, known as uh, failed rescues. Uh, the, the Black Lab, uh, I picked up in South Carolina and I was supposed to deliver it to Virginia and the weather turned bad. So we decided to keep the pup overnight and uh, do it the next day. Well, one night led to another night, led to another night, and I ended up adopting the dog, so. Oh, that has got to be the best foster fail story ever. Well, <laughs> that's one. Uh, and we, we, uh, we run into that type of thing once in a while, and it really does make the whole thing uh, even more rewarding. Um, and, and that is when something like that happens. Um, one of our one of our first rescues, and by the way, I've been doing this since, or we've been doing this since 2014. It started with just me, because uh, I was afraid that Anne would get too attached to the pups, and we, they, none of them would ever get to where they're supposed to go. But that didn't, 
that, that only has happened a few times. But one of our first rescues, a, a yellow lab by the name of Toby, was about a year old, maybe 40 pounds. And uh, we, were taking, we were taking him to um, Maryland. Yep, Eastern Maryland from Raleigh uh, to hand off to another pilot because it was going to New Jersey as the final destination. And um, the airport has a, uh, a, a cafe at one end of the runway. And the runways are like seven, six or 7,000 feet long. So a mile, mile and a half. We were on the wrong end. So a fella that was at the end where we were at the fixed base operation agreed to um, keep an eye on Toby for us while we took the golf cart and went up and got a sandwich. Did, did you want to? No, you know. Um, anyway, <laughs> while we were having lunch, Jerry, the fella that volunteered to babysit for us or dog sit for us, played with Toby. And sure enough, by the time we got back, he wanted to adopt. And ended up doing it. Now, we had to, we had to finish the mission. We had to uh, send the dog off to New Jersey. But he did, did end up adopting that dog. So... Things like that, when they happen, it's just, it really, it's, it's very uh, rewarding, as I said before. And it, they, it's going. Yeah, you know, there are some animals that the minute you see them, they just capture your heart. And I, I don't know what it is about some. Like, I have a little foster kitten right now. It's a little gray and white thing that's got extra thumbs and pink paw pads and I was smitten and then my sister came and and she was like I'll hold she named him Fred I'll hold Fred she says and and she carried that kitten around all weekend and then I keep getting emails from her can you send some more pictures of Fred please you know <laughs> and she's got a very rickety um aged cat who Fred would just overwhelm and and Fred's not going to go to my sister but she was in love she and I were both in love with that cat immediately um so so Anne you have hardly said a thing what how did you get roped into this deal well I have a weakness for rescues and dogs and flying so it's kind of all went together and um it yeah, it can be tear-jerking. I do get attached to some of them, and it's really hard when they go. And, you know, Andrew's always saying, well, you got to get a grip on this. People are looking. Stop crying. Other dogs need your help, too. So, you know, I, I'm better. But I still have my moments. So, yeah. And are you a pilot as well? No. I you're mean, just, I, You're uh, the dog supervisor on the yes. flights. I'm the flight attendant entertainment committee. Yeah. So how, how do pilots find out about Pilots and Paws? Ah, that's another thing that we're very active with. Um, and that is recruiting and advertising and trying to get the word out. A lot of it is just word of mouth. Um, the Pilots and Paws organization puts together a uh, pamphlet, which is targeted toward the, toward the, toward the pilot. And um, we make it a point to any airport that we go to, we make sure that they have an ample supply of those brochures to target their pilot community. Um, and then just the various pilot communities will, you know, will will talk and discuss about what we're what we're doing. Um, I know your listeners, your listeners can't see, but uh, we're both um, wearing our pilots and pause t-shirts. So there's there's uh, apparel that has the 
the the logo and the website name along the back. So maybe we wear one to the gym and somebody on a treadmill behind us said, hey, tell me more about that organization. So a lot of it goes that way. I've spent, um, and I, I can relate to this because, you know, when I did my first one, it was, I was, it was nerve wracking. I, you know, I was taking care of this animal and wasn't sure exactly how this all was going to work. So I do spend time on the phone talking through uh, people about to do their first rescue. Uh, I've even gone uh, along with them, uh, maybe on their first one, just to get people comfortable. Some pilots will just look at it and say, I got it. See ya. Thanks a lot. Others need a little bit more uh, hand-holding. So um, that's really, um, I think, the gist of it. There are sponsors that Pilots and Paws has. Uh, Petmate is a big one. They And they provide the pilots with uh, supplies, whether it's a carrier or collars and leashes. Right. And uh, Cirrus, Air, uh, Cirrus Design, one of the air, uh, aircraft manufacturers I know is a sponsor. You can see them on the website. So the pilots that are involved with those other organizations will see advertising that comes from Pilots and Paws. So we just have about a minute left. What is it that you want my listeners to know most about Pilots and Paws that we haven't already talked about? Well, it's awareness to this aspect of rescue. I mean, it's it's wonderful if people want to help out the the, the animals. As I said before, through no fault of their own, there's like 4 million uh, euthanizations per year because of overcrowding. There's a 70% chance if a dog makes it to a shelter, it's going to be euthanized. So getting the word out that there is this organization that, that, any, uh, that more pilots can volunteer um, would, be the, would be the key message. And the website is simple. It's pilots and pause it's the letter n not the word and so okay. with an s n and then pause.org and take it from there well i think that's a great way to end this conversation and i hope any pilots that are out there will um reach out to pilots and pause because it sounds like such a great use of airtime. So I want to thank Anne and Andrew Zaneski from Pilots and Paws for joining me today. I also want to thank Kelly Muller uh, from the Animal Medical Center for joining me on today's podcast. A big thank you to everyone who's downloaded our podcast. We really appreciate your support. It's made us number four on the pet podcast list. Don't forget to email me for at next show if you have a question about your pet's health. One last time, that email is askthevet at amcny.org, and I'll answer your question on next month's show. If you're interested in AMC, check us out on social media. On Facebook, it's The Animal Medical Center. Twitter and Instagram, it's amcny. Please like and subscribe so that you get all our new episodes of Ask the Vet. And join me again next month for our next new podcast. Have a great June, everyone, and see you in July.